Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. Hello and welcome, everyone. Today, I'm joined by Paul McNamara, who is the Investment Director at GAM. Paul, welcome. Thanks very much, Alex. Let's kick off with you and your background and what got you interested in finance and now particularly focused on emerging market debt. Well, I was um, I studied economics at university, that combination of actually not being terrible at maths and having, you know, coming from an immigrant family, so try and get into something that's got money involved. Emerging markets was really, just as I was finishing university, we saw the end of communism and the Berlin Wall came down, which was something that fascinated me. So after I finished university, I went and lived in Poland three years. I found that fascinating. I was, you know, so I, I came to it from the the post-communist reforms, but it kind of branched out into emerging markets across the world, sort of living in countries and what happens in countries with dubious, shall we say, institutions. I'm really curious around sort of that that process and specifically what you've learned now from emerging markets that also is part of your thinking for developed markets and how to actually look at that trade-off between the two. Well, I mean, it has been interesting because the the big dividing line was always, you know, markets and institutions work very well in the developed world, whereas in emerging markets, the fact that, I don't know, property rights or macroeconomic stability or whatever can't be counted on. And it's the interaction, you know, that you've got a bit more risk, a lot more uncertainty in emerging markets. And sometimes people actually seek out the uncertainty for, for higher returns. Sometimes they just want to stay clear and play and play it safe. I mean, that has changed a little bit in recent years with stuff like Brexit, uh, the election of President Trump, you know, that, that we're seeing that, that some of the institutions in the developed world maybe don't function quite as well as they, as they used to. We've seen some progress in emerging markets, but uh, that side of things, I think, is less pronounced. But I think it's the, it's the interaction of markets and institutions, to use the, the jargon, what happens when you don't have the certainty, when there's an awful lot more variables in the world, than there are in you know what my colleagues dealing with the United States or Australia or the United Kingdom have to deal with. You mentioned there about certainty and the variables that come in, and it's really quite interesting because historically people thought about emerging markets as being really quite volatile, a lot of political instability, a lot of currency problems. But then if you look at the developed countries, you've got some very similar sort of circumstances where you look at Italy or France or the US, where you do have still quite a lot of volatility in the politics. Currencies are moving around quite a lot. The fiscal stability is questionable. Uh, you know, how do you now divide the two? Where to divide the two is is an interesting thing. And I think traditional thing has been, well, just look how rich the countries are. You know, if you've got GDP per capita above a certain level, you're DM. And if you're below that, you're EM. But that doesn't really work because especially the oil-rich states in the Gulf, uh, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, uh, United Arab Emirates, those are very rich in terms of GDP per capita. But the courts don't work, you know, the institutions, sorry, I keep using that word, don't function very well. And we had this big reclassification, I think, about three years ago, when JP Morgan suddenly decided that they weren't going to use a GDP per capita metric, that they're going to do something that looks much more at institutions uh, and so on. So the, the dividing line isn't clear. But I think, you know, anything that does has to be more fun- more based on 
Is it a rules-based economy or is it an economy which much more trades on the basis of, you know, the whims of a politician or the whims of the of, of the, the richer class? The line is, is a hard one to draw. I mean, certainly in terms of Brexit in the UK, it does look a much more like an emerging markets development than a developed world development. But I think overall, and this is one of the things in particular, you know, the, the currencies of developed markets seem to sort of stand in their own right. Whereas an EM currency is only valuable to the extent you can freely convert it for either dollars or euros. But I think it's more about is this a rules based economy than it is about any of the more obvious factors, what might seem the most obvious factors, such as how wealthy the country is. I'm curious then, you know, historically people used to think about emerging markets as very much being, you know, really dictated by what happens, particularly in the US and the US risk off, risk on trade. And when when it was risk off, EM would be really hit, you know, risk on, EM was the place to be. Is that relationship still in play? The relationship is still in play. It seems to function slightly differently, just pure risk on, risk off. It's more about growth that you know, emerging markets are above all a growth-driven asset class, is that when EM growth is strong, and it was consistently strong, it was consistently a lot stronger than the developed world from about 2000 to 2007, that tends to be a good period. Emerging market equities outperform, emerging market currencies outperform, and you know, they, they manage to service their debts generally fairly freely. So, so the asset class as a whole outperforms. Whereas when people, when we move into recession, I think you know that there there are fewer things that emerging markets can do. They can't cut interest rates to the same degree. They can't expand their fiscal deficits to the same degree. So that you know the, the damage that a recession done is much it does is much greater in emerging markets than developed markets. So rather than just sort of looking at you know what the risk premium look in the United States, it's much more about growth and also the the relative growth in the U.S. versus the rest of the world and especially EM itself. You mentioned there the relative uh, relative differences quite a few times there. We've started to see a bit of an uptick in inflation in the US, and the assumption is that there's going to be now almost a, a cascade of inflation that will move through EM. How do you think about that? I'd be cautious about you know what happens in EM. I mean, EM currencies tend to be driven by growth. You know, is EM growing strongly? Number one, and is EM growing strongly relative? It tends to be more to the US than than developed worlds uh, than the developed world generally. As long as EM growth is strong, we would expect emerging market currencies to do well. And it's very very rare to see a lot of inflation in EM when the currencies are strong, because emerging markets inflation it's it, it's a slightly simpler process than what you get in the developed world. If you've had a big devaluation. If food prices are high and if the oil price is rising, those are the things that tend to produce inflation in EM. It's much less about, you know, some of the one-off factors and the policy factors that we look at in the developed world. It's simply currency, food, energy. You mentioned their currency a couple of times. We've seen the US dollar was languishing for quite a while. It seems to have found its base and, and slowly starting to pick up. And, and there's now sort of a question as whether uh, that will now continue. How do you think about the US dollar uh, versus EM? But I think relative growth is the thing that when the US, you know, and we saw this for a few years, sort of in the immediate aftermath of the taper tantrum, when the only real inherent growth we had in the world was in the United States, the, the path of the dollar tends to depend mostly on relative growth. So when the US is growing strongly and we're not seeing a lot of growth in Europe, we're not seeing a lot of growth in emerging markets, that's when you tend to get a strong dollar. Whereas what we saw in, say, 2003, 4, 5, 6, 
is we had growth everywhere. And that's a great thing for emerging markets to do. So it's not just about what's happening in the US, it's what's happening in the rest of the world. And we think it's much more to do with growth than, than interest rates. But it's that it's that relativity. So, I mean, the, the, the narrative until recently has been, you know, that the US is going to grow very strongly because we've got a lot of growth in the US. The vaccination rollout was very quick there. So, we, you know, the US kind of pulled away from the rest of the world. Whereas the vaccine rollout in the EU, although it started later, has actually been more effective and looks like looks to be more comprehensive than it's been in, in the United States. So I think, you know, there is there is a fighting chance that it moves around the other way. I mean, right now, you're absolutely right that the, the dollar is in the ascendant because we're not really seeing the sort of strength outside the United States and, and, and emerging markets tend to trade much more off Europe than they do at the US. It's about this idea of non-US growth. Uh, so that that that's really what we're we're looking at above all. So it's just the r- relationship between growth in the US and growth in the rest of the world, and dollar strength. I think the hurdle for dollar strength is a bit higher than this general perception of you know that we've we've seen a little bit of a bounce already. You mentioned earlier, just in, in the earlier comments around the EU rollout of the vaccine. I'm assuming you meant EM rollout. No, no. I, I mean EU. The the this is the big problem with EM is that from COVID. We got we had a better year than we expected last year because EM demographics are much better than DM demographics. We've got a lot more young people, and COVID is a disease which affects old people. So emerging markets, although they took a hit last year, didn't take a bigger as big a hit. Now the problem is that this year we're going to see vaccines driving growth stronger, that we're going to see the reopening of economies, especially in the developed world. And that's a positive impulse we're not going to see in emerging markets. I mean, traditionally, if European growth was strong, EM tended to piggyback on that because that's a global growth environment, not a pure US environment. But I mean, you know, the the, the absence of a, of a successful vaccine rollout across most of EM, there are exceptions, there's exceptions like Chile, like parts of Central Europe, but they're not going to see that big boost from reopening. And that's going to be a significant problem. And indeed, actually, see, you know, we saw it in India, we're seeing it in Indonesia at the moment, there are specific countries, which are seeing a lot of damage from a resurgence of COVID. And it's not being pushed down by a vaccine rollout. It is the way it is in much of the developed world. I'm glad I clarified that. The other one that we haven't talked about is China. And China was historically seen as very much connected to EM because of commodity trade. Um, I'm curious as to whether that relationship is still as strong as it was. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, EM kind of divides into two groups. You've got the big commodity-driven economies, which Brazil is the most extreme example of, but also South Africa, actually most of South America, most of Africa, it's it's more of a mix in Asia. And, you know, but I mean, the rest of Asia is also very tuned into the Chinese growth cycle. And Chinese growth really doesn't seem to depend on very much, but how much credits the Chinese banks are pumping out. We saw a huge surge in Chinese growth, we saw huge credit expansion in China last year. It's very hard for the Chinese to keep that pace of growth up. So I think while we had a you know, we had a great year last year, we saw big surging commodity prices. I think that is not likely to be repeated to the same to the same degree this year. I mean, the one exception might be softs because given the the you know the the extreme heat in the United States and the droughts, it's going to be a lousy year for a lot of crops. So I think uh, sort of soft commodities should do reasonably well. But the rest of the commodity cycle is is pretty much driven by China, and the outlook there isn't so spectacular. You mentioned there about how you divide up the groups within EM and you talked about commodities. I'm curious as to any other ways that you look at breaking up EM rather than just calling it a homogenous group. There's Eastern Europe, Latin America, Asia. How do you think about the different groups? 
the biggest divider tends to be, you know, the commodity exporters versus the manufacturers. So Brazil or South Africa on one hand, but places like Mexico or Turkey, you know, Mexico's, you know, the biggest thing you can know about Mexico is how is the US growing? They take 80% of, of Mexican exports. Turkey, similarly, not quite as dependent on the European Union, but quite similar. Whereas on the other hand, you know, and so you've got the commodity price countries which just really function off China, and you've got the manufacturing countries which, which trade off their, their local market. The other thing that we tend to do, we tend to look at, is the division of countries between countries which have which are relatively like uh, developed markets, where there's a lot of trust in the domestic currency, where interest rates can go very low, and people will still trust the currency. And that's you know Poland, Hungary, actually most of Central Europe, Thailand, Chile. And then on the other extreme, you have countries where people are really always set to put their money into dollars. They don't trust the domestic currency. Turkey is a particularly glaring example there, but it's also true. It's true in Brazil. It's true in Russia. It's true in, in, in a lot of emerging markets. But I think that division between the countries which have something, something like reserve currency status and the countries where people still kind of think in dollars is another very important divide. How closely do you look, for example, at the change in regulation and also investment flows for countries to, to sort of see its its relative risk tolerance? Those, those are two, those are two quite different things. I mean, regulation and affects the growth outlook in the medium term. It doesn't tend to make a huge difference in the short term. You know, so things like the uh, the tax reforms in India. You know that that that's probably going to be you know mean a lot across the next ten years. Doesn't make a huge difference. You know, but the core growth is very important. I mean, if you look at Russia, you know, they've got huge amounts of natural resources, but the system doesn't really work. So it's very hard to produce a long run average growth forecast for Russia. That's more than about two, two and a half percent, which is pathetic, kind of given given their their level of, of GDP per capita. I mean, capital flows more generally, especially portfolio flows, those are much simpler. Those are just driven by the global risk environment and by global growth, which is which is what I came back to there. There doesn't seem to be a strong pattern where countries like Peru, which are very open to foreign investment, will necessarily do much better than countries like, I don't know, Brazil or certain others, where where the the ability of foreigners to put money into direct investment isn't as clear. So as you're looking at your universe, what specifically are you looking for in terms of emerging market debt? Are you looking at individual corporates? Are you looking at sovereigns? What's your universe? I mean, the, the big call tends to be the global growth environment because emerging markets, you know, the commodity exporters tend to move together, you know, and even the manufacturing exporters, there's a global growth cycle. So, the, you know, I think the single most important thing we can look at is how, it, one, how is EM growth performing? Two, how is EM growth performing relative to the rest of the world? So that, 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 that's kind of the big one. The next thing tends to be a sort of global liquidity, you know, are people buying risk assets uh, and those sort of things? And a huge amount of what happens in EM is really driven by a slightly more complicated version of, of what I've just discussed. You know, do we have growth? Do we have global risk appetite? That's when you buy buy this stuff. The other thing that we spend a lot of time looking at, though, is, you know, as, as I think you mentioned at the very top of the call, emerging markets are very prone to crises, to booms and busts, you know, 20, 30 percent drops in the currency, huge surges in inflation, explosions in interest rates. And, and almost every year you get one of these, you know, go back to 14, it's Russia, 15, it's Brazil, you know, year in, year out, you get countries blowing up. And those are hugely important to for an investor, one, to stay out of the countries which are blowing up. But two, to buy after the blow up, because emerging markets, people get to the stage where 
I never want to put money in South Africa again. I never want to put money in Turkey again. And, you know, the market consistently overshoots the downside and you get a lot of value on the downside. So in terms of the specifics of, of the asset class as a whole, it tends to be global variables. An awful lot of what happens, you know, to the asset class as a whole just depends on this global stuff. But in terms of our ability to add a bit of value, we're very focused on the countries at the margins, the countries which we think are at risk of a major blow up or the countries which are blowing up at the moment because they're probably going to be the best value next year. And so at the moment, we're spending a huge amount of time looking at Turkey, which has had an absolute horror show for the last year or so. It's not been smart so far to bet against the ability of the Turkish president to keep the crisis going. But at some point, that's going to be a stupendous buying opportunity. Just to be clear, then you're focusing more specifically on the sovereign bonds uh, than, than corporate oh, yeah. bonds. Sorry, that's what we yeah, do. That- uh, <laughs> I mean, corporate, corporate sets, corporates are a, are a, are a whole different ballgame. I'm curious also then around the liquidity. You know, one of the concerns I think a number of people have as they look at EM is the lack of trading that goes on in some of these bonds. How do you then think about that change? We have to. I mean, what you tend to find generally is any high yielding asset is going to be less liquid. You know, uh, that what we call the frontier markets, places like Ukraine or Nigeria, you know, don't count on the liquidity there. We never want to have too much money in these frontier markets. And we do have to actually look at, you know, because because country, you know, liquidity doesn't come out of nowhere. You know, that, that again, that word institutions, you know, is there a repo market? Is there a swaps market? Does the, do, you know, does the debt management agency import, impose market making duties on primary dealers, on the, on the institutions which are allowed to bid in government debt auctions? You know, and you'll find that countries like Mexico score very, very well on that. And, you know, Russia, not quite as well. You know, so you have you have a whole spectrum. But managing liquidity is something you have to do in advance. You know, that if we put money into South Africa, we can be reasonably confident that in pretty much any circumstances, we'll be able to get the money out. Whereas into Ukraine, you have to take the view, you know, it could take weeks to get out of even quite a small position. I'm curious around how you then build a portfolio of emerging market bonds to make sure that there is the diversification. You know, how do you think about that process? No, no. I mean, we diversify as far as possible, you know, trying to get rid of the specific risks, especially the specific liquidity risk. But I mean, one of the characteristics of emerging markets, and we saw it yet again last year during the COVID crisis, and we've seen, we saw it in 2008, is there is limited scope for diversification. EM currencies especially are a good asset to have diversifying the rest of your portfolio. But within emerging markets, the own, there, it, there's very limited scope for diversification. You know, the chances are that in a period of market stress, general market stress, as we saw in 08, as we saw last year, you're going to see Brazil and South Africa and Turkey and Indonesia all trading very much in line, just a much purer risk on, risk off trade. I'm curious then in terms of your conversations with various clients, a lot of them are, are trying to chase yield and they're moving up the risk curve to to find yield in a, in a very challenged fixed income market. You know, How much do you come up against other people that are trying to maybe think about high yield bonds in developed market and then looking at EM you know, as, as the comparison? If you look at dollar denominated debt in EM, you know, say Indonesia or Ghana or Tajikistan or, you know, some of the small markets which issue in dollars, those actually look an awful lot like the US dollar high yield corporate market. And the correlation is very high because you're buying US US dollar credit. If you look at the local currency stuff, you've got a, you've got a bit more scope for diversification. But that's more diversifying away from your existing assets rather than diversification within the asset class itself. 
does the default rate then change you know significantly between what you might see in dm versus em well it doesn't because it's very cyclical that you know that argentina defaulted in the aftermath of the us recession these defaults tend to happen on the back of global growth flows, which is exactly when the US high yield market is going to blow up. So the the US dollar denominated credit really doesn't offer a a huge amount of diversification. I mean, there's plenty of other reasons to own it, but it's not a good diversifier if you have a lot of USD corporate credit. Whereas the local currency market, I think, you know, at least lends itself better to the diversification argument. A lot of our listeners are, are from Australia, and the biggest question always around EM is is the currency issue and, and sort of hedging yeah. back into the Australian dollars. Curious to get your thoughts yeah. on on what approach uh, investors from yeah, Australia. Should I mean, take. in Australia and actually Canada, just those two countries, our approach is very different. In those countries, we don't think it makes any sense at all to 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 try and hedge your currencies back back to EMD because the Aussie dollar is very very highly caught. I mean, the chart is 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 really you know, ten, ten, tends to surprise people that, you know, that there, there really isn't a case where EM currencies have done really well and the Aussie dollar hasn't. So you don't get the same benefit when it goes up, but you're also much better protected when it goes down. I mean, the argument really is that the average yield in emerging markets is somewhere around 5%, whereas, you know, you get an awful lot less than that in Australian government bonds. So from the point of view of an Australian investor, local currency EMD is a much lower returning is a lower returning asset than it is for US dollar investors, but it's also a much much lower risk market because it's very hard to think of a scenario where emerging market currencies uh, do badly, but the Australian dollar does well because the because Australia is so plugged into the US uh, the the Chinese I beg your pardon the Chinese commodity cycle. Another interesting question that comes up a lot when you talk to people about EM is uh, why to pick debt versus the equities. Uh, it's one of those yeah. things where you, you tell me the growth story. I believe the growth story that you tell me. Why go down the debt path versus the equity path? Well, I mean, you, again, we come back to these two forms of debt. I mean, the dollar-denominated debt, that's credit asset class. It's more defensive. The ideal environment for the hard currency debt is, is, is when EM growth is low but positive. So there's enough money to repay the debt, but not enough really pump the equities up. Whereas equities do very well when growth is very, very strong, with the currencies coming coming somewhere in the middle. The currencies tend to be a you know a better risk adjusted that you know that you, you tend not to expect to get a 40-50% drawdown the way you do in equities. But you know, it is if you think EM growth is going to be in recession, stay clear, full stop. If you think it's going to be positive but low, hard currency debt. If you think it's going to be reasonably strong, then currencies, if you're uncertain, but equities, if you just think now EM growth is going to fly full stop. Mm-hmm. So what specifically is on your radar at the moment as you think about EM? What are you what are you watching for? What's, what's keeping you up at night in terms of concerns? I mean, we think this should be a decent year for EM growth because despite the vaccine rollouts, the, the countries that emerging markets sell to you know, be that the US or the European Union or, you know, or Australia or the UK or wherever, their growth is going to be strong because we've seen a decent vaccine rollout. I mean, I know the vaccine, Australia is is kind of suffering from the benefits of, of, of its success last year, so the vaccine rollout. But generally speaking, EM, EM is going to benefit from stronger growth than DM. So we think the overall outlook for the asset class looks fairly good. So our attention is much more focused on the countries which we think there might be a risk of blow up. I mean, we think that Turkey... If they can get the policy framework in line, you know, Turkish assets look extremely cheap. We think those those look potentially interesting. 
retaining the, the, the capacity to blow up entirely. Otherwise, you know, we think the great commodity trade, the South Africa, Brazil trade is probably pretty tired. So it's, it's, it's more the manufacturers. It's places like Mexico and Indonesia where we see the core value opportunities, potentially Russia, but, but you know, with a, with a new democratic administration in the US, Russia does contain a certain amount of political risk. But I think the core trade for us now is those countries, especially Mexico and Indonesia, which benefit from a stronger global growth environment. Are you also getting pressure like a number of asset owners in Australia to address some of the issues around ESG? Yeah, it's, it's a very tough one to, to, to address within emerging markets because the, the countries in emerging markets which tend to, tend to score best from an ESG point of view are places you know, like the Czech Republic, um, you know, some of the richer Asians, places like Thailand. It's the richer countries. You know, and when you invest in those, you're investing in a much more stable but a much lower yielding overall group. So you're actually changing the, asset, the nature of the asset class. Uh, overall. I mean, in terms of ESG affecting returns, apart from that selection effect, we, we don't think there should there, there's likely to be a big effect. Because if there were, you know, if it directly affected returns, it's, you know, it should be in, you know, that should be something we take into account, regardless of whether we're running an ESG fund. So what we're doing is primarily discussing with clients, yeah, I mean, sure, we can do this from an ESG point of view, but just be aware that you're shifting the focus of your portfolio to something lower yielding, but less risky. Mm-hmm. All right, Paul, that's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.